Welcome to Asbury Pod. This week, we're talking to Michael Rowland and George Lowe from the center here in Asbury Park to discuss the 30th anniversary of the center, its mission to serve people with HIV and AIDS, its growth from a storefront to residence and community center, and to discuss the impact that the twin crises of meth addiction and the current spread of the monkeypox virus are having in our community and what we can do to combat them. Welcome, Michael and George. The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park in my capacity as the deputy mayor of the city of Asbury Park. They do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official city of Asbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body. Their interviews always hit the mark. So subscribe to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Asbury Park. I mean, pod. Everything you need to know. Brought to you by Amy and Joe. If you're local, they're the pod for you. But Bennies are welcome and Shoebies too. From Route 35 to Convention Hall, it's very pod. Covers it all as Berry Pod. I love you. I love you. Welcome, Asbury Pod listeners. Welcome back. It's August Sunday, August seventh. We're in person, and just so everyone knows, we um, we're on a hiatus for July because Joe got COVID. Yep, after two and a half years, I finally. Got it. Caught and it outside. And being super cautious. You were super cautious for two and a half years. Yeah, I was just saying I, I didn't go anywhere without a beekeeper costume for the last two and a half years. But I caught it the stone pony. So thanks to the summer stage for uh, for an outside transmission event. <laughs> so, so I'm the last one standing of this podcast who hasn't gotten it. But you know mm-hmm. why? Because I haven't gone to the stone pony. Right. I thought I, I went twice that weekend. And I don't, mm. I don't know why I just lost my mind. I thought there's a breeze. It's outside. No. I went to see Amy Schumer last night, uh, Friday night, and I wore a mask. I was oh. like, I don't care. Oh. You know what? Amy Schumer is not enough for me to uh, get COVID. Although Where? I do love her, and she was great. Where was she? Count Basie. Oh. Yeah. And you know, a lot of people, it was sold out, and a number of people had masks. Heather and I were not the only people sitting there um, with masks on. And fingers crossed I didn't get COVID at it. Okay, so we are here with George Lowe and Michael Rowland from the center. I have to tell you, the center is probably one of my favorite places in Asbury Park because of the amazing work that you do. I'm going to ask you, and Dr. Lowe, should I say? (laughs) Congratulations. Um, Thank you. I'm going to have you both just do a quick intro, and then we're going to get into monkeypox, meth, and gay culture. We're just going to dive right in. Wow. (laughs) Okay. That's a lot. Four yeah, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, my name is Michael Roland, and I'm the director of operations at the center in Asbury Park. What is the center for people who are listening? Who are, you know, obviously in Asbury, we all know what the center is, but what is the center? Go ahead, George. Uh, so the center uh, was founded 30 years ago by Father Bob Keating um, in response to um, the AIDS epidemic 30 years ago uh, when he would minister to patients at Jersey Shore. And the nurses and the doctors said they had nowhere to, you know, they can get them sort of back on their feet, but there was no place in the community for 
for them. So we open the center. Uh, it's a drop-in safe space Monday through Friday between 10 and 4 for um, anyone who's HIV positive. And then recently, uh, the Department of Health had changed its uh, funding to allow us to provide services to at-risk people for wow. HIV, which was phenomenal. And then that also sort of opened uh, what's going on with crystal meth because anybody who is at risk, you know, while using, um, you know, can get our services. Mm. And, and that's sort of why we're here. It's, it's about how hard it is to house mm. people right now when with the population, so many people in the population using. And then we opened a residential unit 15 years ago, 25 studio apartments for formerly homeless people with HIV. Mm -hmm. And I have to, so George, I'm going to wait for you to just give a little introduction, Dr. Lowe. I'm going to wait for you to give a little introduction. Then I want to just take a minute because I was not involved in politics, but peripherally remember the zoning board denying the application. Um, so tell us a little bit about you and, and your director of client services. Yes. Okay. All right. So, um. My background has been uh, for many years in healthcare administration. Um, I was the vice president of ambulatory care at St. Clair's Hospital in Manhattan, and then I left there to open a brand new community health center, 22,000 square feet on 49th between 9th and 10th. Uh, it was too good of an opportunity. Health centers were closing, and here I was asked to open one. Um, we bought a place down here in Asbury. We ran into Father Bob at a gay pride festival they had a booth and my partner came up and said I just met this priest who's working with people with HIV and uh, I went over and I talked to Father Bob and he sort of like offered me the job then but the building wasn't done <laughs> uh, so I kept an eye on the building and uh, 15 years later here I am so I I you know my education is I got my uh, associate's degree from LaGuardia Community College in Queens I got my bachelor's from City College, my master's from Hunter, and my doctorate. Recently. Yes, my doctorate recently at age 60 from Arizona State University in behavioral health. Doctor wow. of behavioral. That's amazing. Yeah, so back in 2003, when you were opening the portion for apartments, for mm -hmm. housing, uh, the city of Asbury was not overly welcoming or kind. No, they were not. Um, so when we bought down here in 2002, friends were coming up to me in New York saying, I just bought a house on my credit card in Ashbury Park. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I know where it is, and it's Asbury Park. Um, but that's what it was like back yeah. then, the real estate market. And they were looking to change. You know, that was the first round of people coming in, fixing up houses, putting poured concrete countertops in and, you know, really investing. And they didn't want the center. They wanted to move away from that element. And they literally said so. Um, so they refused to give the zoning uh, permit. And then we had one of our clients sue uh, the city under fair housing for discrimination. And we were fortunate enough, Father Bob met this attorney who said, you know, I'll represent you. If you lose, you don't owe me anything. And if I win, they have to pay. And so it went to the Supreme Court and it was discrimination. And the city did get quite a bill, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> from what I understand as well. And I think, um, you know, uh, is now 15 years later, 
a place that the city touts as just being such an asset to our community here in Asbury Park. So that's kind of, there's an irony there. I mean, yeah. it's a different council and a different administration, but still. Sure. A, oh, no, for sure. An irony. Yeah, and they're, and they're super supportive of the center and um, in every way. So, yeah, so that's... A, a but it's the reason why it still is... A, you know, an example of how to do it right or whatever is because our director of operations, Clark, who we had originally, um, the care that's put into the building and, and now Michael. And so well, we have to stop on Clark Shannon. So Joe and I lived in the Santander for years and Clark was our non handy handyman in the <laughs> Santander for, for a number of years. He was the most gorgeous handyman you ever met. So this is again going back 15, 20 years. So Clark gets hired and we're all like, oh, my God, who is this gorgeous guy who can't fix anything? Who's now <laughs> our handyman at the Santander when you were buying apartments there on credit cards for $30,000. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I would be remiss if I did not bring up what a wonderful human being, beautiful on the inside and the out that Clark was and unfortunately has passed a couple years ago now. Yeah, um, yep. Michael's been there three years, going on four. Four so. years, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, big, big fans of Clark Shannon and was, that was one of, so two people had brought, had made the center, at least in my peripheral, because when I moved here, I was going, I was working full time and going to law school at night. Um, Mary Alice, uh -huh. right. One of your volunteers yes. for many, many years and Clark Shannon, because he had worked at the Santander and then gotten the job at the center. And that was kind of how it started to get on my peripheral. And then I was reading about what was going on with the applications because before the housing, it was just services. Right. Correct. Right. Okay. And that's how you got to know me. Yeah. Through our clients that we were advocating for. Right, because I've been at the um I've been at the law project. We counted this up the other day, like sixteen or seventeen years. Wow. And that was when you and I first started yep. getting my day job is to represent people who can't afford attorneys, um, and or that are have some sort of disability, whether it's HIV or, or mental illness or physical uh, limitations in some way. How how radical if you think about the center, uh, you, if you go back, you're, you're celebrating your 30th anniversary, right? In, in, you opened in 1992. You know, it was a radical act to do that at the time because, the, you know, people, you know, there's been some remove from that time. But the early years of the HIV and AIDS were um, catastrophic that people didn't know what to, what the illness was doing, how right. to treat it. And it was filled with a fear. Right. So, uh, so for someone like Father Bob to open up a services, that's a radical act at the time even well, the, even in 1992 even when things were starting to level out a little bit you know, sure. it was, you know people were like no the medications didn't come out till 96 so right. it's still when i worked at st Clair's <clears throat> hospital they interviewed the chaplain um on the hiv unit her name was sister uh pasquale conforte and the new york times interviewed her and they said to her what is your mission here you know with, mm. with what you're doing and she said we are midwives to death mm. And it was so oh powerful God. for me to hear that as I was a student working there. And it's exactly what we did. The midwife brings a life in. And then also we were there to help them leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, so but to that end, you have to know Father Bob. Father Bob is not one to step away from something that he sees that the church should really have a role in. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a true believer in social justice and mm -hmm. human rights, which is 
what Christian, Judeo Christianity is, is about. And so when I started there 15 years ago, it was an all volunteer organization. And I was like, oh, how are they going to feel about staff coming in now? And we were very few staff. There were three of us. And, um, you know, they, their commitment was unbelievable. They did two days, eight hour days. Um, and finally, I said to Father Bob, what do you say in your homilies? Like, are you holding up babies? I mean, their commitment was unbelievable. And, um, you know, everybody said it was him. It was his homilies. It was him saying to, to that popul- that group. And, of course, some of them had gay sons who had Well, I was going to say, he was doing this in Monmouth Beach and Spring Lake. These were not, you know, he was doing these sermons in places that may not have been the most welcoming places to be talking the way he was talking about our community, right? Yeah, and the and these people were not, they couldn't actually maybe not relate uh, personally or with too many personal experiences, but uh, as you mentioned earlier, they this started uh, at the church, in the basement of the church, with a small group of people who said, what can we do? And then they asked all the questions, you know, who are we going to help? How are we going to help them? What do they need? Um, what can we provide at this time? So that was this, the first part was just getting them. They were getting their medical care. So they were, you know, being seen by professionals. Uh, uh, but what, what, what else do they need? What can we provide? So it was a lunch. It was a safe space. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest part, the safe space for them to come because there was so much stigma at the time. You know, incredibly, these people were, you know, shoved to the side and, and feared by so many people. So, but people afraid to touch them, yeah. Right? And like, that's which true. is, and when you, which is, you know, going back to what this uh, sister had said, you know, when you're witnessing, bearing witness to the suffering, mm-hmm. they, those people are afflicted by the, you know, people afraid to touch. They lose all human um, contact, right? So that's an added suffering. Mm-hmm. So to you know, provide all these services and contact, food, mm-hmm. um, companionship, and everything, it's quite an interesting thing. And, and this, I mean, this is another podcast about you know, having been you know, coming out of Catholic education myself. Having clergy in my family, there are two Catholic churches in the world, right? And Father Bob belongs to the one I, the nuns, the nuns who taught me in school are on the Father Bob side, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Well, you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they were so, you know, when social, and then there's the, the current regime of, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, it's hard, you know, for those of us with, with Catholic backgrounds to sort of wrap our heads around who, who are these people, you know, but, sure. but like Father Bob and the nuns are out there on the front lines. So even going back to Cardinal O'Connor, who was a problematic person, um, still open, is it St. Vincent's Hospital was the first? Um, oh. No, there, there were three, well, there were 11 hospitals in the Catholic healthcare network. Mm-hmm. St. Vincent's was always, had been around long before HIV. Mm-hmm. But what happened was when um, AIDS started, St. Vincent's became the one where gay men went because it was in the village. Yeah. Then there was Cabrini, which was on the east side, and you had the lower east side IV drug users and the upper east side gay men, so they sort of had a mix. And then there was the one I was at, St. Clair's, which was in Hell's Kitchen, yeah. and we had, the, we had the contracts for the prisons. Yeah. And that started with Mother Teresa going to Sing Sing, saying... The nurse saying we have nowhere to send them and she said come with me that's a great story i'll tell you another yeah. time but anyway we ended up having the prison unit secured prison unit at st huh. Clair's, and so they all three of them had a role and unfortunately there's not a single ho- hospital left in the catholic health care network they all closed 
And, and Cardinal O'Connor, when he passed away, they came to speak to me because of the condoms thrown at church and everything. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to know, um, and I was running the Spelman Center for HIV-related disease, and mm -hmm. they wanted to know about him and being gay, um, our clients being gay and whatever, you know, and all that stuff that went on publicly. And mm -hmm. uh, you talk about ACT UP. ACT UP, yes, yeah. when they did that, yeah. And so I remember the president saying, you're going to interview with the Times and everybody. And I said, why? I'm just a director. And he was like, uh, you're gay, you're a male, and you're a veteran. <laughs> well, again, wow. let's put aside the irony of the church. At, you know, The church was full of closeted gay priests, you know, coming to you to ask you what is it with these gay people like, like we can't figure it out right there there's a problem well we can this is a whole nother episode sure, sure. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. touch on um two <laughs> subjects and michael i'm going to ask you a little bit about because george you got me one day and i've been married for 20 years and you know there's a joke about lesbian midnights like nine or ten it's not a joke it's you know there's stereotypes for a reason so i'm home early i'm not out and about i'm not socializing mm -hmm. all that late especially since covid and when you started to tell me that um you know, really, we're having a meth epidemic in Asbury Park. And, you know, you were the way you described it to me was um, so haunting in, in when, you know, as a former smoker and as a drinker and just as, you know, the way the dopamine is affecting the brain with meth. So can you talk to us um, a little bit about what's and, and Michael, maybe you can touch on a little bit about what's going on with meth in in Asbury, what it's doing to the brain and what it's doing to our community. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll let uh, George describe what it does um, to the body and the brain. Um, but I can tell you what, what we first really came across, um, how, how, how big of a problem it was. We were dealing with one um, client. Well, he, he really wasn't even a client. He came to us um, off the street uh, from another organization and saying that he needed help. Uh, he was not HIV positive, um, but again, as George um, said earlier, we, through a new um, grant, we are serving people who are at risk. So he was definitely somebody who was at risk because he was a gay man um, having sex with uh, men. So we um, listened to his story, and um, uh, un unfortunately, there wasn't much we could do right then and there. Uh, because he, he was basically in the place where he needed to be or where he could get the, the most help. But um, then he came back to us and we discovered that there were more things that we didn't know and it was um, a crystal meth uh, issue. And that was, became um, an issue for him trying to get help and moving forward and there were not a lot of resources because of his addiction. And then as we discovered later that there were more and more people in his same situation that were we we were having trouble helping because they were in this um that they, they were in the midst of this addiction that was controlling their lives and they couldn't get help so yep so and so there were and more and more and more people we found in the same situation we looked around and we delve in uh, a little bit deeper and found that you know wow this is really a problem in Asbury Park. And George, describe for people um, the way you kind of described to me in terms of what it does to the brain and why it's it's really quite different than than a lot of other addictive sure. entities. 
So when I finished my doctorate back in March, everybody said, well, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? And I was like, you know, I, I did this for the community and to give back. And I literally turned around and I could not believe the number of people using crystal meth. And I was like, how did I not know this? I've been Same. here. Same. Until you yeah, told right. me, I had no I mean, idea. I literally turned around. And so um, back to the one client that Michael was talking about, he ended up in a program in Western Monmouth County that I'm on the board of for homeless men during the winter. And um, thank God he uh, went to that program because after, I think he had had about 10 um, detoxes. And none of them were working. So the social worker in that program in Western Monmouth um, was saying to me, you know, well, how come he didn't recognize any of the triggers? Why didn't he? He had a great sponsor. He's constantly relapsing. And, and I was like, I don't know the answer to that. Like, I really didn't. So I reached out to um, some people that are involved in Crystal Meth Anonymous. And they told me to read this book, which I did. And it answered all my questions. Um, so first of all, cocaine is, is, uh, an organic substance. It's grown. Our body will process it out at some point. Uh, heroin is from a poppy seed. Alcohol is from potato or corn. And so our body has a way of, you know, processing it, uh, over time. Crystal meth is man-made. It's man-made. It's nothing organic about it. Our body has never brain seen anything like it. And it's not that blue perfect crystal from uh, Breaking Bad um, you know it's uh, has a lot of harmful chemicals in it and um, so when I researched the impact that cocaine had with dopamine cocaine might release 200 units of dopamine smoking a cigarette 250 satisfying eating maybe 300 one single hit of crystal meth releases over 1,200 units of dopamine at one time. Ten times more powerful than anything else I mentioned. So we know why people like it now, right? You can just imagine what that high is at ten times more. And so... Um, and what that low is. Right. So off it, right? Right. So now our brains, when, say, you do cocaine will stop producing serotonin, norepinephrine, all the chemicals that we use to keep ourselves in home steady. And so uh, with a lot of people, the um, cocaine mimics it, so the brain stops making it. And so there might be a crash, right? Uh, and until you, your body starts to make it again once the drug is out of your system. So that could be a night or a day or a morning, that crash. Crystal meth, four days in your system, they have a term called Suicide Tuesday. When people start doing it on Friday, they don't even start to make those chemicals again until um, four days later. And the thing about dopamine is the brain has receptors, and the receptors are certain size to organically process anything we put in our bodies. The crystal meth enlarges the receptors because it's man-made and it's not organic so the brain has to compensate the receptor so now you have blown the lid off of the ceiling that keeps us in homeostasis so those receptors are now starting to like look start looking for more dopamine to grab right more dopamine to let out from, oh. from the drug and it's literally blowing so what 
our hormones do is keep us where we're not depressed, where we're not. It keeps us in this state where we're, we can function. But when you release it all out into your body, then at one time, it's, it's going to take longer to uh, get those receptors to go back to the size they should be. And then the brain to... Uh, the, our brains are plastic. They, so the plasticity, when you say plastic, it, they redevelop people who have strokes, everything. If something is missing in the brain, it's going to compensate. And it's whatever that, so if that drug is in there, it's going to stop doing what that drug is doing. And so the one thing that I found that was so disturbing to me, and I got right on the phone with all my social work friends, is that the reason they're not seeing those reaching out to their sponsors, they're not um, look recognizing those early signs, you know, to say I might be in trouble, is that the brain can give total recall of the pleasure up to six months after stop taking mm. the drug. So it's not the addiction that's making them relapse. It's their own brain. I I had heard something similar about heroin. I have a friend who's been clean from heroin about 20 years. And he said that if you say the word heroin in his presence, he can taste it on his tongue like 20 years later. Right. But that and that is safe with alcohol or a former smoker. Mm -hmm. But this, the imagery, because the drugs does two things. So once you have this incredible high, then you go into the effects of the brain. And so all of us as we develop, have templates. And as we also go through puberty, we identify through our templates what is pleasurable to us. Uh, so, like I said, as we go through puberty, we, you know, as a gay man, you might look at a magazine and see a guy modeling underwear. And you might create a template there and be like, oh, that was aroused me. Um, or for a heterosexual person, it could be a nurse or, you know, everybody creates sexual templates and you can't really change your templates, but your brain, because it keeps your, the hormones keep you in this balance. Um, you rarely go above that ceiling, right? Of that, um, that template, what crystal meth does is it blows the lid off the template and it takes you spiraling down into the depths of where you can go with what was fit normally in your life, say. And so now a lot of people refer to it as a, two diagnoses, crystal meth addiction and then sex addiction. But I did speak to someone recently and he had a good point. Um, someone who's sex addicted, that's they weren't they were sex addicted before they did crystal meth. Right. So it becomes sexual obsession. Right. And, and I agree with that. So you have two things going on. And so um, and then you have what's called scripts. We all have scripts as we develop and, you know, uh, what we like, say someone likes blonde hair, someone likes brown hair, someone likes, you know, we have all these scripts, what society says should be normal or whatever. And again, the drug, because there's no balance there, is taking you to where you don't care about what society. after a while people have said uh, on meth you know I at 50 I turned invincible uh, invisible in the gay community but if I did it even though it was wrong at least I could get have sex and so um so um, so yeah building on what George said I think um, particularly the reason why it's so prevalent in um, Asbury Park and other I mean not just Asbury but you know 
a lot of cities uh, around the country with uh, particularly with uh, gay culture. It's like a perfect storm. Um, you have these uh, gay men who are sexually active and we have the apps, which makes it so much easier to connect with people uh, of like like minded people with your same interests. And, you know, very you can get very specific. And um, this crystal meth, uh, as George mentioned, it. It let you, you you let go of your inhibitions. You can be somebody that you were not before, um, and you know everything goes. So and and people are happy to experiment with that. And unfortunately, when you experiment with it, um, you enjoy it so much that you continue to do it, and it takes over your life. So and Michael, why is it that George wasn't aware of what a major issue this was? You know, I I consider myself pretty involved in the gay community, in the LGBTQ community, um, and it was news to me. You know, is this internalized homophobia? Nobody's talking about it. Um, I I I I, I think that's partially that's uh, that's part of it. Um, I and I think that it's. Uh, it's it's a it's a drug, obviously. So people don't openly talk about their use of the drug. Um, but we talk about opiate addiction, right? And we have compassion for those who've gotten addicted to opiates, and maybe it's transitioned huh. to heroin. Y- you do, not everyone. I does. true, I yeah, do. But true. it seems yeah, yeah. with crystal meth, there seems to be a tremendous. Am- or at least what I'm what I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, is there still seems to be a tremendous amount of shame. Stigma. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And back, I mean, you know, Christmas, it's, this is not new. Um, um, back in the early 2000s, it was very prevalent, uh, again, in the gay community. But then also you saw the commercials with the soccer moms using their, you know, bad teeth. And um, they had um, documentaries on, you know, um, mothers and and people in the suburbs that were losing their jobs and losing their families because of this drug um and now it's 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 making a comeback like in a big way yeah all the all the um major news outlets in new jersey have been reporting that it's everywhere in new jersey not just the cities but the suburbs and traditionally modes of um and uh, taking the med- uh, taking crystal meth is uh, snorting, smoking, or injecting. But now it's actually available in pill form, and now they're lacing it with fentanyl, and that's why it's showing up more around the state because of the deaths. A lot of deaths from crystal meth have gone um, uh, misrecorded. Say they'll say it was a heart disease or a fall or it was something. Um, so they don't really have the true numbers when we look for grant money and they'll say, well, you don't have a problem in your state with that, you know? Um, and so, uh, but I, I think we're starting to hear crystal meth overdoses. Um, Mm -hmm. so that that's changing. And to your point again, George, I'm just going to mention this one more time, the funding for opiate addiction or the conversation everybody's having about opiate addiction, what the Sacklers did, uh, it isn't we're not having that on meth we're not or at least not in the circles i'm running in and and you know how do i do something about that sure a great question one of the reasons we were, got so involved in this um that one client that original one um we researched uh rehabs because rehabs are doing it wrong we know that now it's their brain right there you can tell them call a sponsor or whatever your own brain is your own enemy at that point and so 
Um, Pride Institute has a program where you go voluntarily for six months. You can live there six months to a year. They deal with the sex obsession and the crystal meth addiction. And we called it and, um, you know, they said no one should not get care if they don't have insurance. But bottom line is they didn't take anything he had and they wanted $40,000. And so one of the things that I am hoping to do with this awareness um, is get it to where treatment facilities here in New Jersey can offer that level of treatment and then also have it paid by Medicaid if you're a resident of the state. Um, the dean of the School of Public Health at Rutgers, Dr. Perry. Halkaitis. Yes. Um, he did a lot of research with crystal meth prior to coming to Rutgers. He's from NYU. He's an out gay man. And um, he had handpicked VNA to do his next research project. And um, COVID hit. So being the director of School of Public Health, he had to pivot. And so, but they are in the process of doing that. And I also want to be part of that research when it's up and running so that we can go to the Department of Health. But, you, but you're so right. It, I remember when I was teaching graduate school of social work, they were, um, you know, minorities, black and brown people were doing crack cocaine for years and nothing, right, from the community. You didn't hear anything. And then when I was teaching, all of a sudden it was this new, you know, um, you know, uh, opioid addiction was affecting white, wealthy people. And everyone started saying, you know, we need to get treatment. And mm -hmm. it was so obvious in, in my social welfare policy class that I taught. And so right now, here comes gay men, right? And so, um, you know, at what point uh, are we going to say we need to rally for this now? And um, I just want to yeah. going back to what Michael said there, you know, there was when there was publicity about soccer moms on meth. People were on board, mm. right? Right, and now when you have well, they're just being irresponsible. Like it's easy to sort of the gay community is easy, very easy to sort of just brush aside or ignore, right? You know, what's mm -hmm. why we didn't even know what was happening ourselves, right? And uh, so yeah, you need so, so the same thing with opiate addiction. Until opiate addiction invaded um, soccer moms mm -hmm. and their or more importantly their kids when mm -hmm. their kids yes. when their kids were getting injured in uh, school sports and in ending up addicted, then it became front page news yes. right yeah absolutely um and then governor christie started the uh, uh task force this you know a hotline it's still up and running uh 24 hours to call to get you into treatment but again that hotline isn't going to help gay men we know that now we're actually torturing them by sending them to these detoxes that are going to do no good and so my, my concern is and everybody says Yes, relapse is part of recovery and whatever. I understand that. But I think that if somebody realizes their brain has been hijacked by this drug and they need a lot more than what they're getting, it might help them understand at least that it's not their own fault, that we have to find the right way to go about it. Georgia, can I ask you, is there a medical intervention for... so? In other words, just going to a 12-step program is not enough because the brain is so has been rewired in a way yes. that's going to defeat that. Yes. Your will is overridden by yourself. Absolutely. So, like, you know, for example, you know, I, I'm, I don't drink anymore. I was never addicted, but you're physically addicted. Um, but my understanding is if, you, if you're physically addicted to alcohol, you can't go cold turkey. Right. Like, you'll die. Right, you need right, to go right. to a hospital because the body is so wrecked. 
Um, so is a similar thing with meth going on here? It's like just sort of stopping it isn't enough. You need some, sort of, you know, is there a medical intervention that can sort of help the cravings or right. or help repair the dopamine receptors we talked about? No, not yet. And that's because right. there's no studying it because it's not. Correct. Yeah, and I mean, we, we know what happens through MRIs now of the brains, but certainly uh, also when you're autopsy, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see that, unfortunately. But um, right now, uh, and that's a great question because, yes, we have so many things to uh, aid people wanting to stop drinking. There's medications now, opioids, you have methadone. There's so many things. Um, basically, all they do um, in these detoxes is let them sleep it off till the body starts producing the hormones again. And then they try to get them into a 28-day, which is not going to... The whole time someone's saying, I didn't have a drink today, their brain is saying, remember that hot, hot sexual encounter and that wonderful feeling. And so, um, like I said, there. but I was pleased to see that there are several around the country that do this long-term treatment, but not here in our state. I think you also mentioned this is a bigger issue. Uh, when the Pride Institute can do six months of rehab, no one else can get that, right? right, right. 28 days doesn't help anyone. I think my, my mother's brother is a terrible alcoholic, you know, like a pro, right? When he, in the early 70s when he went to get sober he was able to sign himself into the new york state mental hospital system for a year wow he had himself committed for a year to do people places and things like stay away from so he, uh but also do all the, like the 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 mental uh, work that needs to be done uh, to get sober it's you can't do that anymore and then remember you're putting a group of gay men all <laughs> struggling with the same thing yeah. and they're all their brain is telling them each so you have to have a really structured environment you know where you can you know that that temptation isn't there or whatever you can go to an a meeting and no one there would drank right or that day or whatever and and so um so it's it's really hard now fortunately this one person we started with there is a new program that opened in South Jersey. It's not specific for, uh, it's for chem, chemical drugs. And, um, well, just describe that so mm-hmm. so people understand what that means. Oh, so there are a lot of other drugs that people use other than crystal meth. Um, uh, and again, Amy, like you, I never was part of that late, late night party thing, uh, you know, uh, I did the day drinkers on Fire Island. Um, <laughs> or a taka for me. <laughs> yeah. But there, there, there are so many other drugs out there that people are combining things with and then, um, what, you know, having a hard time getting off because they associate it with sex. And, but nothing like crystal meth. Um, but they, and also uh, opioids, they were considered, right? Um, uh, this longer term treatment. And so this client signed up for three months so he did the three months, and I talked to him probably two months in, and he said, if you asked me a week ago, I would have said I'm ready to leave, but not this week. The imageries were coming back. A very bright, brilliant man, this guy. And so it would be nice if he had an option for six or a year, but they are transitioning him to what's called a, a group home of people who use chemical drugs. And um, in South Jersey, so away from people, places and things, as you're saying. And then hopefully that'll take him through the next, you know, nine months. Um, and, and, and Medicaid pays for this. But again, it's not specific to this. And, and a lot of gay men have said, I think when we did our presentation, Michael, mm-hmm. that um, 
see, they've lost their connections. They're mm. right. That's what Joe was talking about earlier when we first started this um, about connections, and that's what it really comes down to. Um, you isolate, and you you know you feel bad about what you're doing, and um, and you lose that connection, and that's like, I mean, we all we all need that, we all crave that. So, and then it's turned into really this storm when you're combining monkeypox, the lack of vaccines. Yeah. Right. I well, mean, it's like let's just let's just kick everybody while they're down oh, sure. and add this shit to their play. Uh, oh, right. Um, so. The one Dr. Fawcett wrote about um, the book that I read, and the end of it is about that connect. It's always loss of connections, feeling invisible, feeling not wanted. Um, and so I end the, this lecture series with who is our community, right? Who, who is our neighbor? And um, why are so many people in Asbury feeling disconnected? And and how do we as a community, and thank you for having us on here to get this out, make it so they don't get to that point, right? So Amy, 15 years ago, Asbury, there was a very small group of people, right? And and so we were all pretty much, either you were drinkers or you weren't and whatever, but, uh, but now we have people moving in with a lot of money and younger, and so it's changed. And so people are feeling left out. I think one of the reasons we do so well at the center, what our volunteers are, they want, we know, psychologists know, that people are happiest when they're connected to their community. And I think that's how we find our volunteers. They want to stay connected to the community now that they're retired or lost a partner. And because they know if they don't make that connections, you know, it's not good for them. And so how do we make gay people in Asbury not feel invisible and and so maybe they won't even go down that path and the people that are struggling with it get them the right help that they need and provide that kind of space for them also so that we can all be a community together I had a question um, if someone's listening in Asbury and is struggling with meth uh, what do we tell them? Can they come to the center for uh, um, for assistance as a first step, or is there a hotline they could uh, call? Or there's no no hotline that I know of. There are there's one CMA meeting here in Asbury Park, and it meets on Fridays. What does CMA mean? Uh, Crystal Meth Anonymous. Okay, okay, yeah. And then there's another one in New Brunswick. More are starting to come up, um, which is good because. You know, early on, they try to have CMA meetings here and no one would attend and um, the numbers just weren't there. But now it, now they have them and it, they seem like, a, you know, a great group of people. It's just that they're struggling and what they're being told is because they're relapsing constantly, just keep coming back. But the fear that they won't make it back that time is what is bothering me. Right. You know, yes, I understand all of us, you know at some point have to hit our rock bottom, but most of us have not had a hijacked brain. Mm. And that, you know. And are you seeing monkeypox affecting this demographic of people as well? Not yet here. I okay. mean, of course you have California. We have one of the few vaccines going on at the VNA. Yep, and they keep, every time they open it sell up, out. they sell out. They sell out. Which is good, which is great, but, um, uh, right, so if you have someone who uses 
uh, crystal meth and there was a guy in San Francisco who got COVID and monkeypox at the same time. And like, you know, like, you know, we're, it's just like, boy, you could just be hit with so many and people are trying to move on from COVID after this two years of not having connections and they're going on gay cruises and it's still COVID and now it's monkeypox. You're on a boat with all these uh, gay cruise, right? And so everyone wants that vaccine and, um, the thing with the vaccine is it's uh, two shots. Right. Um, now, in, everywhere else in the world, other than the United States, they're only giving one because there's not enough vaccine. Um, and the maker of it said one should be enough. But in our country, because of the high risk behavior, they want to make sure you are as immune as, you know, as strongly the- as, immune as, po- immune as possible. So we, we are doing the two. It may change because what I'm hearing on all the news shows are, the most at risk. But here's the problem with the most at risk. You might have an individual who has hundreds of sexual partners and you have maybe had two, but your third is with that person. So everybody, if you ask me, is at risk, right? Well, and like all all illnesses, um, it does not stay where it starts, right? It's oh, a, right. This exactly. is not at all limited to the gay population. I mean, in fact, in the 2003 outbreak, you know, it, it was transmitted by a rodent, I think a prairie dog, mm-hmm. to like a farm family in Wisconsin. The fact that this time, it, you know, may have been transported by a rat off a ship or an international traveler into urban centers. So, um, you know, uh, and it hit the gay community first. That doesn't mean it's staying there. Oh, no, for sure. And that's, you know, I mean, this, like you said, the same thing with HIV. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons when the medications came out in 1996, the Ryan White Care Act was uh, up for a reauthorization with Congress, and everybody was worried that they were going to remove it and put it under Medicaid and Medicare with everything else because it was now a chronic illness. And so a lot of lobbyists went to Washington back then, and uh, St. Clair's was there. We were all there. And um, they were saying, why, you know, why do we need this billion dollar care act? And uh, and it's, this was my term. And I, I don't know if it's ever been said anywhere else, but I said, you have to have HIV exceptionalism. Yes, it's a chronic illness, but it's still infectious. And so if you give it to somebody else, it's going to cost the country. It's, the, you know, in healthcare and everything else. So. So, you know, you're going to have you're going to be a burden to Medicaid and Medicare, mm-hmm. right, if you don't do it. And then that's going to drive up the, their costs or whatever. So when anything is infectious, you'd ha- you have to have exceptionalism mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I think uh, I read 650,000 people still died of HIV in 2021. It has not disappeared. So it's chronic manageable, but still lethal and, and um, requires intervention. Right. So it's not. Oh, yes. You would right. need the medication to be. Absolutely. And, and we can't um, leave this program without um, mentioning um, U equals U, which has um, changed uh, the HIV um, status and community uh, in a huge way. So he, U equals U means um, undetectable is untransmittable. So if you're in care and you're taking your medications, that means you're undetectable and you cannot transmit um, HIV to another person sexually, um, whether you're using a condom or not. So mm-hmm. um, that's huge. And it's changed the, the, the changed it here, though, Michael. But everything I read, like in poor communities in the South and the Midwest, 
the access to that is or to prep or you know it's just non-existent the state of, the state of texas is act you know under after the row is actually suing to exclude prep from health health insurance really did not hear that because it's in the litany of bullshit news right, right, <laughs> coming and, out of yeah. texas <clears throat> wow right and uh, you know and it's so short-sighted because like like you know we said it's undetectable and untransmittable when it infects so why would you why would you go after that because yeah sure it just you know it, it's, it's just a way to accelerate suffering for people it makes no sense it makes no sense fiscally it makes no sense socially um it just, morally yeah morally it makes no sense and you're right amy um, and we, we, George and I attend these, um, conventions and you meet people from other areas of the country and they are like, no, this is not, this is not our experience. We do not have this experience. And, um, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, but, but there is a global, um, network to, uh, you have the Clinton foundation, the Bill Gates, they're, they're, all these foundations that want to end AIDS by 2025. This initiative started, I would say, three years ago, maybe four, and then COVID hit. And so globally, because they know U equals U, um, they're saying by 2030. But our country kept it at 2025. And believe it or not, based on our numbers, we're on track. Uh, we're at 2022. And that can change because now we have monkeypox, right? And you just never know what's going to throw that that off. But that's the initiative. And what I don't understand, and like Michael said at these conferences, you know, I'm hearing about the care down in the Appalachian Mountain area, right? Things like that. And um, these are federal funds. So it's not like you're just saying New Jersey, we like New Jersey more. It's I guess it's more the state has to opt in to, to them, exactly right? and that's where it's unconscionable absolutely and that's where we won't make it so you know um you know that, that's hopefully what we're hearing in these conferences is how do we reach those areas and give priority to them now and also i think the framing of it so you know i'm reading these articles about monkeypox where you know, I think it's probably tricky in that the one article I read was that 99, 99% of the people getting it are gay or bisexual men. But, you know, the, the nuance of that is not what Joe and, and Michael were talking about is stigmatizing it as only the gay male community, mm -hmm. right? It might be in that community right now, but it, it will expand beyond that. And, you know, kind of doing that dance in a way to make sure you're informing the community that is being the hardest hit now, but not stigmatizing. Well, the stigma will go back to where it started, though, which was gay men. And <clears throat> so... Um, and, you know, I understand epidemiologists have to put out the numbers and the statistics in order to, you know, figure out the hotspots and everything. Um, there was a CBS uh, morning show where they had this doctor on and he was saying, you know, gay men might have 11 partners in a lifetime, like, say, 90 percent. And I don't have the exact numbers. But at one point it was like over a thousand, this other percentage over a lifetime. And um, so you're going to have people saying that. You know, it started with there, right? And then will it get its HIV was deadly, right? Um, and uh, this is a virus, you know? And so if you get it and you're sick for five days, is the public really going to be, if it is contained, say? So, so yes, there's always stigma if it's going to be gay men around number of sexual partners. And I remember... Um, 
in the movie Lily Tomlin was in it and it was San Francisco and they wanted to close the bathhouses and the gay men didn't want to and she said because they're scared they're scared they don't know if they have it like or whatever so you know a lot of people are are scared and and again it's on your face so people are going to look at gay men and their hands and you know that part of stigma is back right and then that that yeah. It's following the same path. I mean, if you're old enough to remember the way the Reagan administration teach, uh, treated the HIV. Uh, the or- didn't treat. Yeah, I mean, I'm mean, old enough to remember Larry Speaks, yeah. the uh, spokesperson for um, the Reagan administration, sort of laughing his way through the gay, the gay cancer, the first gay cancer uh, press, press conference. You know, um, what an awful person, right? And, thing, and so the same thing is happening now, I think, I think the one difference is the, the Biden administration cares about this, doesn't maybe just has, doesn't know what to do about it. But it's still, you know, in the press, you're having it's the same script, you right. know. But we all, we all want to make it clear to your listeners also that th- that monkeypox is not a sexually transmitted disease. Right. Um, so you can um, be in close contact. It's close contact. Yeah. Disease, right? Yeah. Right. So I mean that's also a, a difference, but and totally. which is ma- makes it even you know a little bit. Scarier, more stigmatizing. Yeah. How yeah. close am I going to get to a gay person? Sure, right? yeah. And but the thing is, it's you know, it has nothing to do with monkeys. Its transmission is uh, it's reservoir of rodents. Yes. Well, did you know how it got its name, monkeypox? Uh, no, I don't. Back in 1954, we almost all of our medical experiments because monkeys are so closely related to us and our mm-hmm. DNA and everything. So a lot of research is done with monkeys, primates, and people don't like that too right you mm-hmm. know that but anyway in 1954 they had this virus at in the smallpox family and of course monkeys got it when they whatever and because it was for whatever reason the person said this strain is monkeypox mm-hmm. but i did hear that they are going to change it because of this again the relationship to you know comments being made about gay men getting it and monkey pox here we go we don't know the origin of hiv and then looking deeper into sex lives of gay men mm-hmm. and so um well they're being a, they were a little nebulous on how it was transmitted for a while first there. at first yeah yes. so all you were hearing was gay men get it yes and then but nobody's <laughs> explaining specifically how it's transmitted which was also kind of a a puzzling well there is some there is some like if you go on the cdc website i found two two sets of facts about it you know it's close contact maybe saliva born mm-hmm. which is you know like other viruses like the flu mm-hmm. so if you're you know standing close to anybody with it you could get it but it, then there's the speculation is, like, is it airborne there's a question mark there you know could it be that you know i saw one website it's like man maybe maybe it's airborne or you know so there's still like someone it's just like COVID. Uh, yeah we went through yeah. this right. with COVID. yeah, yeah. Right? we yeah. have you know new information uh we'll change day, things yeah. day by day yeah, yeah. so but let's. I wanted to go back to um, the services at the center. So, um, is and you the center... guys are always looking for volunteers. Well, right? no. Are you yes. okay. regarding monkeypox? Though, okay. are you guys providing the vaccine, or is it the VNA, VNA. here? VNA, and then here we in provide Park. the link to all of our clients. And I have to give a shout out to the VNA of Esbury Park. They mm-hmm. were initially one of three. I think it was Newark, Camden. I'm not sure. Uh, and yeah, and Esbury Park, yeah. And um, always want to give a shout out to Shannon Preston, who's. Um, you know, just a real, a real uh, innovative thinker at the VNA. Yeah, and she's making sure we get what we need. She's yeah. amazing, and she's she amazing. was, uh, she did. Um, we should have her on the show. We should. She oh, was sure. hands on with this uh, monkeypox vaccine, and there were, it was basically they didn't know 
when they were getting it, how much they were going to get. And so they, you know, they did a great job of, of uh, letting people know. And they used their COVID vaccine um, infrastructure protocol, yeah. protocol mm-hmm. to let people um, know and sign up and to get the vaccine. So they did a great job, you know, with what they were given. Who but is, you can sure. imagine a lot of people are frust- frustrated yeah. in the community that there wasn't <clears throat> enough for them. And continues to I know. Enough, so. Right? You know, and, and, and it was the same thing with COVID. They right. were mad at these sites because they ran out. And, you know, everybody's trying to do the best with mm. what they have. Interestingly, uh, Shannon told me that her first couple of uh, vaccine sites had more people at them than at the height of COVID. Sure. She had more people seeking the monkeypox mm-hmm. vaccine than at the height of COVID. It'd be really? Wow. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Not everyone's eligible right now for the vaccine. So what what is the criteria? For, like, in other know, words, they, high, high uh, risk is all... They're repeatedly saying high risk, mm-hmm. but we got to get to the high risk individuals in California, New York, where. Yeah. Na- but now he did declare it as a national emergency. Yeah. So that's going to free up a lot of vaccine. So yeah. now you're just not looking at high risk states. Um, but again, and, and, you know, you have that one person who wasn't high risk. Right. But whatever had some kind of contact where they got it. And and again, uh, you know, you do hear the experts saying it's not deadly. It's very painful. Um, it's what, you know, and the people who have it have super immunity to it, just like with measles or whatever. Smallpox, yeah. Yeah, when, right. When you get it, you get it. Um, but it's, again, it's the, I think more of it is the stigma. It's going to cause the isolation again right. and everything else. Yeah. And, and as you said, it's, it's not deadly and it's... Um it's, I think it's like a 20 day period where you, you're not you're only infectious until your last um, scab is dried up. And the shout out to the gay men out there who are posting um, their experiences on um, social media, Instagram, TikTok, and they're sharing, you know, visually and uh their experiences with this and you know getting of pe- having it of having it yeah their experience of having it and um and and more and more people are aware and seeking out the vaccine taking it serious. yeah and taking yeah. responsibility uh so yeah great job to to those people who are, are sharing their and that can't be um easy to do you know because no. it's visually unappealing right. um and these are men who are you know take a lot of pride in how they look right, and right. you know so yeah shout out to all those people who are brave enough to do that well that's a learned behavior too like you know we when when the when the government abandoned the gay community at the beginning of hiv there was you know act up and other mm-hmm. things we have to start taking actions to, to defend ourselves so like this is this is you know let's do this let's publicize what's happening to me my experience so people can learn and perhaps protect mm-hmm. themselves i just want to point out hyacinth is also the hyacinth foundations also has the vaccine yes yeah. So I don't know the locations off the top of my head, but between the VNA and Asbury, it's North, North Jersey. It's, yeah. yeah, I don't so know. Hyacinth yeah. might be in Jersey City. Um, it could that. be, yeah. So we'll put up where you can get the monkeypox vaccine. Yeah. And George, you're going to end us and how mm-hmm. and how to be a volunteer at the center because yeah. okay, well Michael will do that. Okay. The volunteer <laughs> and but to get in touch with me. Yeah. Again, it's George Lowe. I'm going to give you my cell number for anybody dealing with. Any of the at, anyone at risk for HIV, regardless whether it's crystal meth or whatever, um, my number is 732-299-4320. Because the more numbers I get, it makes it more real. 
mm-hmm. right? I don't want this to be a thing where people are dying in their apartments and no one knew about. I, you know, we need to 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 do more. The city's sure. seeing. I mean, can we put that on the website? Absolutely. Right okay. Yeah, and so and and um, so George, you know, took it up upon himself to, after reading the book, to you know, takes to do something, you know, mm-hmm. manifest. And um, creating these workshops for anyone who wants to come. And information is power, right? So um, the more you know. And we, we didn't know. And now we do. And you know, I'm joining George to share this information with as many people um, who want to listen and you know come to these workshops. So, uh, And again, we'll probably update you guys as to where and when those things will be happening. But there, we're definitely, you know, we're both committed to... Um, you know, stopping, stopping this. Um, mm-hmm. And if people have some spare time, Michael, how do they get in touch with you to, yes, to they start can, they can go to our website, um, the center in Asbury park. You're a mainly ru- r- volunteer run organization. We are right? hugely yeah. run by uh, volunteers. And that goes back to uh, father Bob in the basement uh, of the church where that they created, you know, that this whole structure, you know, what, what can we do to help? Um, how can, you know, what do they, what are the needs and providing those needs? And so that's still the case today. So we're basically a volunteer, um, run organization. Uh, there were only four or five, um, full-time positions at the center. Um, and we have volunteers running the front desk, um, providing meals in the kitchen, um, picking up, um, meals um dropping off meals so um yeah so so anyone who's interested in volunteering can go to our website the center in asbury park.com um we have a new uh, website it's great dot org dot org sorry <laughs> yes it is, uh, whoops yeah, we'll put it org. up at the end yes yeah. dot org yeah. um and they can call the center at 732-774-3416 uh we have a great volunteer coordinator um who also does our social media cindy Molitor. And uh, she's very receptive and is always looking for um, people who are have time to, you know, share their their uh, experiences and their knowledge and their time with us at the center. And we're very grateful. Thanks, guys. You, Appreciate one, one more you. thing. You have a fundraiser coming up in September. Cycling for the center. Yeah, cycling for the center is uh, September twenty fourth. Twenty fourth. Yes, <laughs> and we have uh, three rides. So we have a a. a 10 mile ride a 20 something mile ride and a 40 something mile ride so any um experience that um is there a couch option that we can <laughs> yeah no well yeah no there is a couch option you can you can support another rider oh, that's so right. yeah there you go. so again you can go to our website the center at asburypark.org yeah uh and you can you can sign up uh you can support another rider on another team um so yeah please please do that we need that and those funds go to help support um the people that we were talking about thank you thanks guys appreciate it yeah thanks for coming out really appreciate it 